Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I call your attention this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 9 and 10. We've been involved in a refresher course for the past few weeks on the basics of our faith. And today we come to the concluding message as we talk once again about the purpose of the gospel. And I will begin by reading 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Now the last word of verse 8 is God. And he picks up now in verse 9. Who hath saved us? God who hath saved us. And called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I think it's interesting and important to note in these two verses the difference between the fact of salvation, God hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, and the report of salvation in the gospel, verse 10, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The fact of salvation is explained in terms of Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. That is, he's dealt the death blow to death. Jesus has won the victory. And now that wonderful fact is reported to us in the gospel. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If we're going to properly understand the purpose of the gospel, we must first understand the nature of it. What is the gospel? Last week we noted that the gospel means good news. Now, we all know what news is. I listen to the news, I read the news, I watch the news on a daily basis, probably you do as well. News is a report of what happened previously. And the gospel is good news. It's important to think of the gospel in those terms. Our text, notice, makes a distinction between the objective fact of salvation and the subjective understanding of it, the report of it. There's a difference between the fact and the report of the fact. The news happened yesterday, but the newspaper comes out today and tells us and reports what happened. And Jesus accomplished salvation yesterday, if you please, on the cross. But now the gospel reports what he's done. So there's a difference between the objective fact of verse 9 and verse 10a and the report of it. He's brought it to light through the gospel. Now notice he didn't say that he's brought life and immortality through the gospel, but he's brought it to light through the gospel. If you were to come in here on a cold winter's night and the lights were out, and then you were to flip the switch on and turn the light on, it would not make this pulpit and these pews and all of the objects you see in this church building a reality. They were here before the light was turned on. 
The light just shows you where they are. It just reveals that they're here. And the gospel does not bring spiritual life to God's people, but it brings it to light. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel shines the light on what the Lord has already done. That's an important distinction to understand. In similar fashion, listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. The apostle says, And all things are of God. Now he means all things in context, all things that apply to our eternal salvation. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us. Notice the fact of reconciliation. Who hath reconciled, past tense, us by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to the next verse. To wit, that simply means that is to say, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, I ask you this morning, my friend, do you see a difference between the work of reconciliation and the word of it in this passage? God was in Christ reconciling. He's doing the work. Reconciling us to himself. He hath done the work of reconciliation, but now he's committed unto us the word of it, the ministry of it. We preach and proclaim the good news of what the Lord has already done. So that's the nature of the gospel. The gospel is called the word of reconciliation. Acts 13, 26, it's called the word of this salvation. That is, God performed salvation. Now we tell the word of it, the report, the good news of it. Acts 20, 32 calls the gospel the word of his grace. Because grace is the keynote of the good news. Aren't you glad the song that John Newton wrote is not worded like this? Amazing works. How good am I? What great things I have done. No, it's a song about the grace of God. And the gospel is good news because it's not about what you've done or what I've done, but it's about what God in his grace and his mercy has done for unworthy and helpless sinners. It's the word of his grace. The God who is the author of it is the God of grace. The Holy Spirit who blesses it to our understanding is called the Spirit of Grace. Jesus Christ, who's the sublime theme of it, is said to be full of grace and truth. The gospel is the message of the grace of God in Christ. Likewise, Colossians 3.16 calls the gospel the word of Christ. Because again, he's the sublime subject and precious theme of it. So what is the gospel? It's the word of reconciliation. It's the word of this salvation. It's the word of his grace. It's the word of Christ. Hebrews 5.13 calls it the word of righteousness because it reports to us how unrighteous sinners are made righteous, not because of anything they've done, but through the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to their account. And in Romans 10.8, it's called the word of faith because it's a message that must be embraced and believed by faith. That is, it's not something that somebody without faith can possibly understand. You know, all men do not have faith. 
You understand that, don't you? Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, Pray for us, brethren, that we, when we go out preaching, may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. It is a fact, my beloved, everybody can't believe the gospel. Man by nature does not have the capacity to believe. John 8, 43, Jesus says, Why do you not understand my speech even because you cannot hear my words? Verse 47 says, He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not because you're not of God. It is a fact, my beloved, that only those who have been ordained to eternal life in the council halls of eternity past will ever believe. There's another step in between there that's important. After God has chosen them and marked them out as his own in the council halls of eternity past, the Holy Spirit must come and open the ears and the eyes and open the heart to be receptive to the gospel through his work of grace in regeneration. That's why it's called the word of faith, which we preach. I'm so glad that our gospel, my beloved, is a spiritual message. 2 Timothy 2.15 calls it the word of truth in the gospel. The word of truth. Did you know the gospel's a true message? It's the truth about God. It tells you the truth about who God is. He's not a passive God. He's not a tolerant and indulgent God in heaven, but he's a God of justice. And the gospel message tells you that his law had to be satisfied, and it was satisfied. His wrath will be poured out upon the wicked, but upon those that he marked out as his own before time began, his justice has been met and satisfied and appeased through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It tells you the truth about man. It doesn't flatter man, does it? The gospel doesn't tell us that man is capable of anything that he can conceive. But the Bible tells us that man by nature is completely ruined and helpless and hopeless apart from God's grace. It tells us the truth about sin. But you know, the world doesn't like to hear the truth about God, and it doesn't like to hear the truth about man. And it sure enough doesn't like to hear the truth about sin. It likes to call sin a sickness. It likes to call sin a mistake. But the Bible is very clear. It tells us that sin is an act of cosmic treason against the God who made us. It's an act of sedition. It's an act of rebellion against our Creator. Sin is man's capital offense against the God who gave him all that he has. And were it not for the entrance of Christ to take our sins upon himself, each of us would have been punished for our sins forever. So the gospel is the word of truth. It's the word of salvation. It's the word of reconciliation. It's the word of his grace. It's the word of Christ. It's the word of righteousness. It's the word of truth. And it's called in Revelation 3.10, the word of my patience. The word patience means perseverance. The more you and I understand the good news... Now, this world's full of bad news, but I'm telling you that there's some good news to be found. The only place you're probably going to hear that is in the house of God on Lord's Day morning. You're not going to hear a lot of good news out there. You say, well, my team won their conference championship yesterday. Well, I'll tell you, for everybody that rejoices, there's somebody on the opposite side that's not rejoicing because their team lost. You say, I heard some good news yesterday, but that's fleeting. That's really empty and vain. It won't last long. But I'm telling you some good news. It's the best news poor sinners have ever heard. That God thought about you before you ever existed. And he made provision for your everlasting happiness and felicity. 
and Jesus Christ came in the fullness of the time and took my place upon the cross and paid my sin debt. He did for me what I was incapable of doing for myself. And he did it not because I deserved it, but in spite of my misdeeds, in spite of my sins, Jesus Christ paid it all. He shed his own lifeblood. It was all by grace. It's all God's favor upon unworthy and undeserving individuals. And Jesus was not victimized there at Calvary, but he rose from the dead three days and three nights later. He burst the narrow limits of the tomb, and now he lives forevermore as the sovereign of the skies. And one day he's coming back to claim those that belong to him and to get what he paid for. And forever we'll be with the Lord. And I want to tell you, my friends, that's the word of truth. And that's the word of my patience. It's the word that helps you and me to keep going, to persevere. And the gospel is also called in John 6, 68, the words of eternal life. Don't you love that story where Jesus asks his disciples, will you also go away? Now, when John 6 starts, a multitude is following Jesus. He's at the zenith of his popularity. There's a huge throng coming to hear him preach and to see his miracles. John 6 begins with thousands of people following Jesus. But by the time that chapter ends, only the 12 remain. And you say, what happened between the beginning of that chapter and the end of that chapter? And I'll tell you what happened. Jesus preached sovereign grace. He preached that only those who are drawn by God can come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. He preached, I came down from heaven to do the Father's will that all which he's given me, notice he's preaching election, all that he's given me, I should lose nothing. He's preaching the preservation of the saints, eternal security. I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. He's preaching that salvation's a free gift. He's preaching that man can't come to him, but yet irresistibly they're drawn by the sovereign spirit of God. And by the time he preaches that message, it says many of them that followed him went back and walked with him no more until only the 12 are left. And he asked them, will you also go away? Now, here's a question for every one of us this morning. Will you also be like the rest of the world and wander away from this glorious Savior and the truth of his grace? Will you also go away? And Peter speaks up as the spokesman for the group, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And my, what a question is that. Where else can you go and hear good news? Where else can you hear this message of a successful and victorious Savior? You say, well, it's not a popular message, but I'll tell you, if the Lord's ever shown you your needy condition, He's ever shown you your need of Him, then it's the only message that'll suit your case. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. This is the message of how eternal life comes and who is responsible for it and who gets the credit for it. The words of eternal life. These are words that you won't hear on ABC or CBS or NBC or CNN or Fox or any other of the major networks. You won't hear it through various alternative media. The message of eternal life is a message that comes from the true gospel. The words of eternal life, it's a message that tells you how eternal life is given and who's responsible for it again and who gets all the glory and the credit for it. So I repeat this morning, the gospel is not the means of giving eternal life, 
but it is the good news of it, the word of eternal life. It is the report of it. Last Lord's Day morning, we gave you two important reasons why we believe that the gospel is not the means of eternal salvation. It doesn't bring life and immortality, but it brings it to light. One of the reasons was simply that the gospel regeneration view, the idea that the preacher has to go and preach the message and the sinner has to respond, does not adequately satisfy the tension between what the Bible says about total depravity, man's spiritual state by nature, and the act of believing. A dead person can't believe. And this idea that you've got to preach the gospel to the spiritually dead in order to get them to come to life doesn't satisfy the tension. Life has to be given before he can act. Life has to come before action. And we emphasized that last time. We also talked about the fact that the gospel means view interjects an element of inconsistency, the human element, human agency. When it puts humans into the equation of eternal salvation, then that's the weak link in the chain. You see, the Bible tells us that salvation is a cooperative work between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Salvation's of the Lord. God the Father planned it, God the Son accomplished it, and God the Holy Spirit applies it. But if you throw the preacher into the mix, if you put the church into the equation, if you say man has to play his part, that's the weak link in the chain and there can be no certainty of the outcome if that's the case. That's another reason that we reject the idea of gospel agency, that the gospel is the means of getting people eternally saved. I think it's the report of it. It brings salvation to light, not to reality. Christ brought it to reality, but the gospel tells you what he's done. Now, this is what we believe. It's what I've believed since my eyes were first opened as a young child. I came up cutting my teeth on those old hard pews at Muleshoe Primitive Baptist Church in Muleshoe, Texas. And I heard preachers preaching the good news of salvation by grace alone. And I'm thankful to have believed it because, my beloved, I think it's liberated me. It's given me peace and freedom. The gospel has saved me. It's delivered me. And I'll tell you, the only person it'll ever save is somebody who's already been ultimately saved. (laughs) Somebody who's already been born again. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the believer, not to the unbeliever. I want to give you a third reason that I deny that the gospel is the means of regeneration. The third problem with the gospel regeneration view is it confuses the effectual call with the gospel call. Now we know the gospel is a call. God is calling us. We sing a song about it. Jesus calls us or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. You ever feel like during the week you've been on the restless sea? It's a tumultuous season in your life, and you hear the Lord calling, Christian, follow me. Yes, my friends, there is a call that goes out. When the gospel is preached, the Lord speaks. But I'll tell you, before you can ever hear that, he must have first spoken in your heart effectually. And the gospel regeneration view confuses the gospel call with the effectual call of the Spirit of God in the new birth. Let me give you two verses. Would you listen to this? Put on your thinking cap for just a minute and spin the little propeller on the top and let's get going together. John 5.25, contrast this verse with Hebrews 3.15. 
John 5.25 says, The hour cometh and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now listen to another verse, Hebrews 3.15. says, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Both verses speak of God's voice, right? The voice of the Son of God, His voice. But notice the response to the call in these two verses is different. John's passage, the dead shall hear, that's the language of certainty. Hebrews, that passage is the language of appeal, if you will hear His voice. You see a difference between the words the dead shall hear and the words if you will hear? His voice. The first, my friends, is something that's certain to happen. The second depends upon your response, if you will, upon your will, if you will hear his voice. The first verse in John's gospel is a call from death to life, but the Hebrews passage is a call from spiritual fatigue to spiritual rest. If you will hear his voice, you can enter into his rest. The effectual call is a creative act in the soul, but the gospel call is a rational appeal to the mind. That's why the outcome is different. One will hear, they shall hear, and live. The other, the outcome is uncertain and vague. The difference is between the gospel call, which I'm trying to give this morning, and the effectual call of the Spirit that must precede the gospel call. You see, what I'm saying is the effectual call has to come first before a person will ever hear. God has to speak to the heart before the preacher's message will ever mean anything to a person. Have you ever noticed in John chapter 1, verse 49, Jesus said, Before Philip called you to Nathanael, I saw thee under the fig tree. You know, that's the sequence. Before the preacher's message is ever heard, the Lord must first have an encounter with an individual that belongs to him. Before Philip called you, I saw you. In Acts chapter 8, verses 27 and 28, before Philip the evangelist preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Lord had already given him an interest in spiritual things. That's why he's wondering, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? And he said, I need understanding. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, I need guidance. How can I except some men guide me? But the only reason he's interested, the only reason that he wants to learn is because the Lord's already tendered his heart. The Lord got there before the preacher did. In Acts chapter 9, before Ananias removes the scales from Paul's eyes so that he can see, God has first struck him down. Christ dealt with him on the Damascus road and changed his heart so that now he's a praying man. You see, the Lord got to Nathaniel before Philip did. He got to the Ethiopian eunuch before the evangelist got there. He got to Saul of Tarsus before Ananias was called to preach to him. Acts chapter 10, he got to Cornelius before Peter arrived to preach to him. Cornelius is described in Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 as a just man, one that feareth God and paid alms. He's a devout man. He's a pious man. He's one that feareth God. And those are characteristics that are only true of somebody who's been born of the Spirit of God. You don't find the dead sinner interested in God, reverential toward God, wanting to help others, praying and his alms and prayers have come up for a memorial before God. You know, these are evidences that he's already got spiritual life. So before Peter preached to Cornelius, the Lord got to him. And before Paul 
preached to Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. You see, the effectual calls a call to eternal life, but the gospel calls a call to repentance and faith. The effectual calls a call to sonship, but the gospel call is a call to discipleship. The effectual call is a call in which God speaks directly, but he speaks through men in the gospel call. He uses instrumentality, uses human agency in the gospel call. The effectual call is always obeyed. There's never a failure. But I'll tell you, the gospel call is frequently disobeyed and resisted. And I know that by personal experience, both as the one who's bringing the gospel and the one who's hearing it. I know that it can be resisted and disobeyed. The effectual calls of creation, but the gospel calls of communication. The effectual call is directed to the spiritually dead, but the gospel call is directed to the spiritually alive. The effectual call is an internal call, but the gospel call is an external appeal. The effectual call produces life. The gospel call brings light to those who are already alive. So you might ask this morning, Brother Mike, in a positive sense, what's the purpose of the gospel? If it's not to help the Lord populate heaven, if it's not the means by which the dead in sins are brought to eternal salvation and eternal life, then what is its purpose? Well, our text tells us to bring life and immortality to light. It brings the light of understanding and comprehension to the mind of the little child of grace so that he can see the one who saved him. You remember when Lazarus was dead, who raised him from the dead? Did the apostles or the disciples raise him? No, Jesus raised him. How did he do it? By speaking directly to him, Lazarus come forth. But then after Lazarus has come forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, mummified, Wrapped in these grave clothes, he says to the disciples, now you loose him and let him go. Notice the disciples didn't give him life, but their job was to take the grave clothes off so that he could see the one who had given him life. I want to tell you the preacher's job is not to help the Lord get the sinner spiritually alive, but it is to remove the grave clothes so that he can put on the grace clothes. It's to remove the obstacle so that he can see the one who's given him life. Indeed, my friends, it brings light to the mind. It dispels the darkness of confusion and ignorance. Do you think the Ethiopian eunuch was in darkness? Was he confused in Acts chapter 8? But after Philip preached to him, he said, I want to be baptized now. Certainly Saul was in darkness. He had scales on his eyes, but the scales were dropped. Now, you see, he already had life. God gave him life, but he still needs sight. He needs vision. And the preacher came, Ananias, and the scales fell from his eyes. Acts 10, Cornelius has spiritual life. He's interested. He's concerned. He wants to learn and to grow. But he's in darkness. And Peter comes and tells him what Jesus Christ has done for him on the cross of Calvary. That's why I love John chapter 8, verse 32, where Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is a liberating message, isn't it? And you say, well, what truth is he talking about? Notice a few verses later, he says, and if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. It's the truth about the Son, S-O-N, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the truth about Jesus that sets us free. And my beloved, there is freedom indeed to the little child of grace. There's freedom from fear. I love that passage in 2 Timothy 1, 7. God has not given us the spirit of fear. 
Now, I'll tell you, most people are controlled by fear. It's just natural to us. We live our lives afraid of what other people are going to think of us. We're self-conscious. That's fear. We worry that others are going to mistreat us. We wonder what kind of fight we're going to have today as we go out and engage with the world. And I'll tell you, the little child of grace who knows that he's accepted in the beloved is delivered from fear, the fear of what other people think. Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoso trusteth in the Lord, he shall be safe. My friends, to be able to put your trust in the Lord and say, whatever happens to me in this world, I'm not going to be afraid because I'm a child of the King. I've accepted in the Beloved. And if people mistreat me, yet the Lord has received me. If people mistreat me, it's probably not as bad as I really deserve as a result of the kind of person that I am. But praise God, He has accepted me in the Beloved. I belong to Him. Heaven is my home. I'm a child of God. I want to tell you, dear friends, there's deliverance from fear for the little child of God. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Oh, there's power in the gospel message, isn't there? There's the ability to overcome our fears. There's the ability to rise above the worry and anxiety that so easily besets us in this world. I don't know about you, but I have my various psychological struggles each day. I think most of us do. We have our fears and our worries and anxieties and our self-consciousness and our discouragements and depression and it's so easy to slide down the slippery slope into the slough of despond but i'm telling you god has not given us the spirit of fear but of power you have power resurrection power you have the ability my friends to face life head on through jesus christ the gospel will set you free to remember what He's done for you, that He loved you before time ever began. He wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus came to the cross and took your place. And He paid your sin debt in full so that you'll never have to answer for one sin. He's already solved your biggest problem. That's what I'm saying this morning. My beloved, I'll tell you, if other people understood what the Lord's done for their souls... They would have the liberty, the liberty in which Christ has made us free. Paul says, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. My beloved, why would a person go back to the yoke of the law, to legalism, and say that you have to perform certain works and you have to keep these rules in order to be pleasing to God? I'm so glad to believe that Jesus paid it all. All the debt that I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. This is good news to the sensible sinner, to the individual who sees himself ruined and helpless and hopeless, to know that Jesus Christ is a successful Savior, that the Father was well pleased in his beloved Son. Indeed, the gospel message brings the light of understanding and comprehension to the little child of God. How wonderful it is to know that Christ has abolished death. That he's already gotten the victory over our worst enemy. What is the worst enemy you'll ever face in life? It's that cemetery out there. It's the prospect that our bodies are wasting away. All it takes is a few ailments and illnesses, you know, as you get older and you go through a season when you say, boy, I thought that was going to be the end of me. I felt my frailty. And you realize how brief and fleeting is our natural life here. And you think, I'm not ready. My life has passed too quickly and I'm not ready. Well, my beloved, you don't have to be afraid. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love.
and of a sound mind. Oh, there's deliverance, there's freedom, there's liberation from the fear of death in the understanding that Jesus Christ has abolished death and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I can see it this morning. Can you see it? I'm trying by the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God to shine the light on what the Lord's done for your poor souls. He loved you before time ever began. He's loved you a lot longer than you've been loving Him. In fact, if you love Him today, that's an evidence that He first loved you. He plucked from His breast the darling of heaven and sent Him into this world for the likes of people like us. And Jesus voluntarily and willingly came. And He said, Father, here am I, send me. He was mistreated, our Lord Jesus was. He lived a life of poverty. He was born in a barn. He was laid in a manger that is a feeding trough. He was an outcast among men. He grew up in relative obscurity in a carpenter shop. He came on the scene preaching his own everlasting gospel, teaching the truth of God, and for the most part, he was never a popular figure. But I'll tell you, he made his mark on the world, and the world has never been the same since our Lord Jesus was here. And we're here today, my friends, not just to carry on his legacy. We're not here just to remember his memory, but we're here to tell you he's alive today. Even though he lived his life and he was put to death as a capital offender of the Roman Empire on the cross of Calvary, my friends, three days and three nights later, he came out of that tomb. He just borrowed that tomb. You know why he borrowed it? Because he wasn't going to need it for long. He came out of the tomb, a victor over death, held in the grave. And now he reigns as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords on the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day he's coming back to claim all those that were given to him by the Father and that he purchased on the cross. He's coming back to gather them home. And he's going to tread under his feet every last enemy. He's going to vanquish every foe. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? He tells us that God has given us the victory. Thanks be to his name through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel brings the light of understanding and comprehension and it dispels the darkness of confusion and ignorance and it sets the believer free from fear. It's the power of God to save us, to deliver us, not only from confusion and ignorance, but the gospel is God's powerful resource to deliver the believer from the practice of sin in his life. Now, if you're like me, sin easily besets me. I have an old nature, and you do too. I struggle with my attitudes. I struggle with my passions. I struggle, my friends, with pride. Somebody says something about me. I mean, I get my feathers ruffled pretty easily. And you probably do as well. I don't like somebody to think something about me or say something about me that's not accurate. And I'm ready to come to blows and to stand up to defend myself. I've got an old nature just like everybody else. Sometimes I lose focus and I get distracted by fool's gold in this world. I think there's something out there that would satisfy me, but you know, the more I try it, it doesn't reach the deep needs of my heart. It can give temporary pleasure, but it doesn't bring long-term satisfaction and contentment. There's a spiritual need in me that the world can never satisfy. And if that's your case, then that's an evidence that you've been born of God. Indeed, my friends, I have an old nature. And I practice sin. I, I want to stop it. I want to be holy. I want to 
lay aside the sin that easily besets me and run this race following Jesus. I want to, like Jesus said, die to the flesh. He said, if a man will be my disciple, let him take up his cross every day, daily. Now, what do you need a cross? A cross is a place to die. I need to take up my cross daily because I'm putting my old nature to death. I'm mortifying the flesh. Colossians 3, 5 says, mortify your members. You know, the first four letters in that word are M-O-R-T, mort, mort, like a mortician or a mortuary. It means to put to death, put to death the flesh. I need to deny myself daily and you do as well. You have to get up in the morning and say no to self and say yes to Jesus. See, there's a negative and a positive side. Say no to yourself, say yes to the Lord. I'm not going to do what comes naturally to me. I'm going to do what the Lord said in His Word. That's what it means to live the Christian life. Well, every day we have a struggle. We struggle with the practice of sin. We want to practice righteousness instead of practicing sin. Well, if you need help, you need to hear the gospel and believe it and be reminded of it of a regular basis. It will save you if you keep it in memory. You're saved by the gospel, says 1 Corinthians 15, if you keep it in memory. That's our problem, isn't it? We forget what the Lord's done. We forget who He is. And we become so fixated on everything going on around us. That's why we need the house of God. We need the gospel to be proclaimed. We need to be reminded on a regular basis of what the Lord has done for our souls. And if you'll hear the gospel, it will save you. <laughs> It'll deliver you. It won't save the unbeliever. It won't save the unregenerate. It'll save those who've already been quickened, spiritually alive. But we need salvation on a daily basis. I need to be delivered from myself, from the world, from the devil's assaults and temptations. And the gospel is God's powerful resource to save the believer from the practice of sin. Listen to this verse, Acts 26, 18. And I love this verse because... The Lord explains the purpose of the gospel in very detailed terms. The Lord says, I delivered you from the people and from the Gentiles, and now I'm sending you to them for this purpose, to open their eyes. Now, what's the gospel for? To open people's eyes. Not to open their hearts, not to give them spiritual life, but to give them spiritual sight, to open their eyes. It brings light. It brings understanding. So the gospel delivers the believer from ignorance to understanding. Then it says, and to turn them from the power of Satan unto God. You know, the old devil, he, he attacks us, he assaults us, and it seems that he has power. You say, oh, the power of evil is great in this world. But I'll tell you, it's nothing compared to the power of God. God's power is greater than the devil's power. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The devil's a strong man armed who keeps his palace, but then there's a stronger than he that overcomes him and takes from him his substance and destroys his little playhouse. I, think, I don't think that's written in the Bible, but anyway, that's the Michael Goins edition. But there's a stronger than the devil. Paul said, I've come to turn you from the power of Satan unto God. I'll tell you, to live in the power of God means that the power of the enemy doesn't really have any sway over you. Revelation 12.10 says the early church overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By Christ and the report of the gospel of Christ, we could overcome the devil. 1 Peter 5.9 says resist him steadfastly in the faith. It's the truth 
It's the gospel message that helps us to resist the devil. And then he says that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The gospel delivers us from the shame of guilt to peace in our conscience. I believe that's likely the dominant purpose of the gospel is to bring the guilty sinner peace in his conscience and his heart. It's what happened to the Pharisee and the public. And in Luke 18, the Pharisee was so proud of himself like a peacock thumbing his lapels. I'm not like other men. Thank you. I'm such a good character. But the publican could not so much as lift his eyes to heaven. You remember? But he smote upon his breast because that's the source of his problem. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I'll tell you, that man went home justified. He, he received the blessing. He came that day with conviction in his conscience. He went home with peace, the peace of God in his heart, in his mind. Indeed, that's what the gospel does. It'll deliver you from the shame of guilt and give you peace. Paul says, God sent me that the hearers may receive forgiveness of sins. That is a sense of God's forgiveness and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The gospel will deliver you from a life of loneliness to a life of sweet fellowship with God's people, that you may receive an inheritance with the sanctified, with God's children. And that's what the church is. The gospel church, it's a place where lonely people can find belonging and find other people who understand your story, who sing your song, and who know what you're talking about. Do you know what the gospel is? It's God's powerful resource for giving peace and hope and joy in the heart of the little child of grace. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. It's when you believe the gospel, when you hear the message and you cease to quibble with it, cease to argue against it, cease to keep it in suspended animation and say, well, I'll think about that later. But you just embrace it. You say, I can, I will, I do believe. Jesus is my Savior. My trust is in Him. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for my poor soul. I'm going to humble myself and receive that message. It's to those that receive Him that He gives the power to become the sons of God in a manifest way. And you can find the joy and peace in your heart through believing the message of His grace. In a word, the gospel saves the saved when they believe it and embrace it and keep it in memory. What a precious blessing the Lord has bestowed upon us to be able to hear the proclamation of the good news on such a regular basis. Thank you, Lord. May we never take it for granted. May we never tire of hearing this most sublime of messages. And may we not only hear it and rejoice in it on a weekly basis, but may we be eager to tell it to others, to publish it far wide, to sound out the word of the Lord so that others of God's little ones may come to understand what great things the Lord has done for their souls. I hope you've enjoyed and been refreshed by this series of messages on the basics of our faith, the things most surely believed among us, the new birth, the everlasting covenant, the finished work of Christ, and the purpose of the gospel. These are key truths that we hold dear, and it's really what distinguishes primitive Baptists from our friends in other traditions around us. We're not just trying to be different, but these are things that are really precious to our souls. It is the truth of His grace as far as I understand it. Amen.